book of Isaiah. Isaiah got to see a vision of the Lord in the temple seated upon a throne. And it says that his, his robe, the train of it just filled everything, every part of it. To me, signifying his dominion over everything. And you're seeing the God of creation, Jesus himself, on the throne with angels around him declaring, holy, holy, holy. Day and night, never ceasing to declare the praise of God. And Isaiah, a man in the presence of God, could only respond with what? Fear and terror. And an immediate realization of who he was in the presence of who God is. A sinner, a man of unclean lips who lives amongst a nation and people of unclean lips. We're all bad, God. It's on our lips. What do you see? What do you see happen in that moment? In the middle of contrition and confession, one of the angels taking a, a burning hot coal and bringing it and touching it to the lips, signifying the cleansing and the washing away of the things that are very true about us, the sins of our life that make us unworthy to stand before God. Yet he does something to make us able to stand. And he did it through his son, Jesus holy, holy, holy above everything, every throne, every dominion nothing on planet earth or in all of creation is worth giving this type of honor and praise to but the one who's do it all our Savior, our God and Savior Jesus Christ we get to go into his presence right now because of what he did boldly we get to bow the knee and enter boldly in and confess to him and ask him for what we need in this moment So let's do that. Father, I admit with my brothers and sisters, I imagine feeling the same way I feel, just a sense of unworth. But God, my heart being overcome with gratitude and wonder and amazement for who you are and how good you've been to us. Father, thank you for not leaving us in our sins. Thank you for sending your only son. Jesus, thank you for being obedient to the point of death, even a shameful death on a cross. Father, I pray for the one right here this morning that that may not have this joy that that may still be lost in their sins, that this morning you'd open their hearts and mind to see clearly through the power of the Holy Spirit the truth that their soul knows is true. You'd give them the strength to believe it and trust it, to repent of their way and to turn to you and flock to you only through Jesus and nothing else. God, thank you for this wonderful gospel truth. And I pray that you would be patient with us as we open your word. You'd be with me to help me declare the truth that we see here in 1 Peter. We pray this all in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Summit kids, we love you. Love you. Have a great time. Open your hearts and minds to hear what God has for you. He loves you and he wants to use you for his work and kingdom as well. There's no age limit to God using us, is there? Take your Bibles, those who are in here, turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. We are finishing our identity series. And I can't say that I want to finish it because this is one of my favorite books in the Bible. And I wish we could spend longer here. But we're going to actually finish this and go right into a study Uh, in the book of Revelation, and so we are very excited about that. It feels appropriate to get into that book, but there will be more coming with that next week. I can't get, I can't spend too much time talking about that. Just know that that's coming. Identity matters is what we've been talking about, and I want to read to you and remind you the theme verse that we had, the verse that really, that, that, that culminates in this understanding of identity in the book of 1 Peter, and you'll see it on the screen. First Peter chapter two, verses nine through 10 says this, but you, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Look at this. Once you were not a people, 
Once your identity was, you had no identity. But now you are God's people. But look at this description. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Identity matters. So let me ask this question. Why does identity matter? Why is it so important? What, how could I um, answer this in the simplest way possible that's kind of being pulled out of First Peter? We've been making this big statement that identity does matter. We can answer it this way. Identity matters because the world that we live in that is ruled by the devil is constantly attacking that identity. You may be saying, well, no, God rules the world. God is over everything, but it is God himself who reveals in his word that the, the sway of the world, the influence of the world is in the power of the evil one. And we're gonna see today that this evil one is prowling around like a lion seeking someone to devour. We live in a world, the worldliness, the the flesh, the physical realm that is under the rule of the devil and guess what he's constantly trying to attack? The identity of people. He's a liar and he has been a liar from the beginning. John 8, 44, you'll see it on the screen says this. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. This is Jesus speaking about Satan. Because there is not truth in him. No truth exists in the devil and Satan. When he lies, get this, he speaks of his own accord, his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The, the originator of evil. No influence outside of him making him be evil. He is the full embodiment, malevolence of evil and wickedness and lies and murdering and violence and all that we can see through an object understanding in life of what is evil comes from him. And this is the guy who rules the world. And guess what world you're living in currently for the time being? That world. His goal is to attack identity. Pay attention. Do we see that happening in the world today? Do we see identity under attack? You don't even have to, let's start with our own lives. He is a liar and a murderer. He wants to tell you what is not truth. He wants to represent the voice of God in your life. He wants you to hear him as if it's God. And then he wants to speak to you something that's not true. So he likes to convince people who are right with God that they're not right with God. And will constantly attack the people of God and try to convince them that God does not love you. And then he will try to convince those who are not right with God that they are right with God. Constantly breathing lies so that they would not come to a place of repentance and receive the truth and be saved from eternal damnation. Do we see an identity war, war in our culture today? I mean, it is, it is at the forefront of people revealing in their soul that they know something is missing, something's not right. I I have this overwhelming sense about me, it seems, that I am not who I'm meant to be. But then without the knowledge of truth, that the solution to that identity problem gets placed on other things like sex, gender, sexuality, whatever it may be. You can see in the world this enemy at work screwing with people's identity. And if you do not have an identity, if you walk around and you have no sense of who you are, that is the most destructive way to walk around mentally. People need the truth. Jesus shows up and he shows us who God is and shows us who we are and who God wants to make us. And this is the message that people desperately need. And he's left here, us here on the world to help people see that because we look out and we see what? Very true, the enemy is at work trying to steal the identity of others. So here's a question. The enemy surrounds us. Where shall we seek shelter? Which is what's gonna lead us into our final passage today. Where shall we seek shelter from this enemy around us? Here's a good place. How about the mighty hand of God? Is that a good place to be, church? Good, safe place to be? The mighty hand of God? Now, Let's get our minds in a, in a place. Let's get on the same page here. 
Let's imagine we're all kind of like bunched together on an African plain and there's a great uh, kind of uh, wilderness, African wilderness before us. And we've been tasked to go through this wilderness carrying a, a big chunk of meat and we're told that you're going to make it to the other side, but know this, that there's lions all over the place. You don't know where they are, but they're there. What would that feel like, taking the first step on that journey? Would you just do that for no reason? Would you just, you know what? I feel like doing that today. I feel like, you know, walking in the midst of a, of a plane ruled by lions and willy-nilly going to the other side. That sounds extremely fun. Now... If there's a camera involved and maybe you're under 25, you might actually do that with no other reason. <laughs> but if we're all going to be objectively honest about what's foolish and what's wise, no one's signing up for that. Now, even if it was offered to you millions and millions and millions of dollars waited for you on the other side, now you've got a goal. Now you've got a reason. Now, now you've got something that might make you want to actually risk doing that. But if you value your life, you'll realize that no amount of money is even worth that risk. And you probably would have some that would actually try it. You see where I'm going with this? Here's the difference. We are in a world that is filled with lions that are trying to devour us. This is in the spiritual realm. We don't get to choose if we walk through it or not. It's true. We are in the midst, in enemy territory right now, no choice, we're there. God awakens our heart and helps us to see that according to Peter, we are sojourners and exiles, aliens on a strange planet and we're passing through. This is not our home, we don't belong here. We are in enemy territory. Now, what are you gonna do? Do you, do you know what to do? Imagine being tasked to walk through that and you're saying, okay, you're looking at the person who's telling you to do this and you say, is there anything that I should know about my journey through here? They're like, nope, you gotta figure it out on your own. Thank goodness that God does not leave us like that. He gives us something like the book of 1 Peter. That's essentially that. You are in a world that is not your home. In fact, it is, it is behind enemy lines. It is like being on the African plains with lions all around. Here's what you do. Make sure you understand these things and you're equipped with all of this to be able to function in a way where you will not be devoured. And so we read it, we eat, sleep, and breathe it. We want this to be hidden in our hearts so that we can make it to the other side. You get the picture that I'm making here. The mighty hand of God is where we seek shelter Read with me verses six through 11 of 1 Peter chapter five. Verse six, Peter says this, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we come to the end of Peter's letter. The, the end of his exhortation application, and if you read this, it feels, here's what it seems like Peter's doing. It seems like he's been spending the whole time helping this horse get to water. Now, what must the horse do when the horse gets there? What's, what's left up to the horse? To drink. Can you make the horse drink? No, you can shove his head down in the water, but at the end of the day, he has to drink what's being given to him. Think about how Peter has, has set us up for success in a world with a lion seeking to devour us. He starts out the book say, showing us how much God loves us, showing us who we are. How, no no, no uh, ifs, ands, or buts about it, the identity. Look how much God loves you. He cares for you. He's for you. Here's your identity. He equips us with the knowledge. 
He continues to go on and he shows us different areas of life where we should act and not act. He tells us to be holy and he shows us what holy living looks like. Then he starts to give the overwhelming purpose of the book, which is the perspective of suffering. When you are a Christian in this type of world and you suffer for being a Christian and the lions are chewing at your legs and eating you, you shouldn't think something's wrong. You should expect that. Doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. Doesn't mean that he's given up on you. It doesn't mean that somehow you've been left behind. It's a part of the expectation. And then even more than that, God is bringing a great purpose through your suffering that you would even be called blessed if people speak against you as evildoers, malign you and mock you, which the expectation on this planet should be that they hate you because they hated Jesus. This is not our home. We are not in Christian territory. The world we live in, the country, the, the, for, for, for a long time we've had a, a very big experience of, of peace where there was great friendliness to Christianity, but we even too can see that quickly fading. The expectation of scripture is that we should be ready for this and to not let it surprise us and to honor God even through the suffering that would come to us as a result of us following Jesus. We are told that that all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But we have a life to live and we want to make it to the other side. God has saved us and he's promised to help us keep that salvation according to 1 Peter that our salvation is being guarded by God, not our power, his power, but it's being guarded through what? through faith. And he says, the most precious thing you have is your faith. And we're going to see today that the most precious thing the enemy wants to take from you is that very thing. Here's the question, or here's the focus. I want us to show us, according to Peter, how to survive the onslaught of this lion, the devil, while we're on planet earth, walking through, awaiting for God to take us home, How do we survive this? What does drinking the water look like we've been led to? How do we put it into action? What should every single one of us take and put in our back pocket these few verses as it pertains to walking in a world like we are? Surviving the onslaught of the devil requires, first and foremost, what do you think? It requires God's might. We have a mighty enemy So there needs to be a greater might thrust against him. But God's might opposed to whose might? Our might. God's might is what I need in this journey, not mine. Look at verse six. Humble yourselves. We're gonna get to humility here next, so bear with me. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Can't you see the implications there? Humbling ourselves, putting ourselves willingly under someone else's might, someone else's ability, someone else's power. And the word there for the mighty hand of God should make our minds, if we're good students of the word, go back to when this phrase was used in the Old Testament over and over again, back to the Israelites who were in Egypt stuck in slavery and they were being promised that the mighty hand of God would deliver them. It's a pretty good correlation. The mighty hand of God. You know, when life's hard, when you're facing things that are painful, when life's not going the way you want it to go, or when you're suffering in this way for trying to do the right thing, whose who's might are you relying on to get through it? God's might over mine. Well, how do I know? How do I know if, that I, if I'm under the shelter of God's hand, right? Do, is, is it, am I under there just because I say it? Just because I believe it? Just because I proclaim it? How do I know? Well, thankfully, Peter equips us even more with knowledge. He says this next, which shows us the next thing that is required for surviving this prowling, lying, is humility over prideful control. He uses this word humble. 
And, and that word humble comes out of an extension of last week where he said this back in verse five. He told all of us to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. And then he gives us this quote, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The number one thing Christians need as it comes to serving God, living with them, walking, we need humility, which means I am not thinking of myself too highly. I'm not relying on myself. I'm not looking and seeing me as the center of everything. He's the center. He has power. He's who I need. There is a genuine understanding and longing within my heart for him to be in control, not me. How do we know that that's the case in our life though? I need God's might in this journey to be what's uh, uh, being expelled against the enemy, not mine. I need it by humbling myself putting myself under, but here's how I know. Verse seven, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So so you have this exhortation. Believers, humble yourselves under God's might by implication, not your might. How How do I know if I'm doing that? Well, are you what are you doing with your anxieties, your fears, the things that, that you walk through life and, and capture your mind and drive you to a place of fear, that real heart-pounding experience that we all feel? What do you do with those anxieties? That is the gauge and the indicator of whether or not you're walking in the humility that will keep you under the mighty hand of God. By the way, remember, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We're told in the Old Testament that God dwells with and he's near to those who are broken and contrite in heart and broken of spirit. He dwells with that person. But God cannot help the person who's resisting him. If we're resisting God and his control and his might, then we are resisted by him and we get to experience life on our own. How does that go? Well, I'll tell you what, when walking through life that's filled with many things to be anxious about and fearful about, and we try to deal with those things on our own, we will experience the fruit of our own strength. And I would imagine all of us here with an echoing amen going through our mind is that that never works. God is mighty, we are not. But I need, I need to be under the mighty hand of God. I need him to be the one who's fighting my battles. I need, I need to be under his shelter. Okay, what are you doing with your anxieties and your fears? Here's what Peter says. Peter says that if you're humbled yourself under mighty hand of God, at the proper time, he will exalt you. That's one of the main reasons we don't want to be under the mighty hand of God because we think through our own control we can get ourselves out of the situation quicker than God will. So that's one of the reasons we will not humble ourselves. And then he tells us to do this with our anxieties, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Another reason we don't cast our anxieties is because we genuinely are living in unbelief. We live with the right answer to the test, but genuine unbelief because we do not believe he cares for us. We do not believe he'll help us. We do not believe he'll be with us. So we do not cast our anxieties or we do not like his timing. All right, we're all on the same page here. I think we can all relate. No one's getting singled out by this. All of us are like really good at what this feels like and what the experience of life is like this. This is why we need this knowledge. It's why we, God writes to us to help us to see things. So now we need to be honest about something because if we're being eaten alive by anxieties and fears, we need to bring that to the light and be honest about it because here's what this means. If you're sitting here and you're reading this and in your heart of hearts, you're like, I do not cast my anxieties on God, then you should not assume that you're walking in humility and you should not assume that you're walking in the might of God. You're walking in your own prideful control. Hanging on to your own anxieties is pride. But the enemy doesn't want us to see it that way. He tries to bring a different message when it comes to the things we're afraid about, uh, afraid of and fearful of. He says your anxieties are happening to you. 
And you're a victim to those things. And, and look at how, how much you're going through. Oh, poor you. You should feel sorry for yourself. And if anyone comes along in your life or you experience anything in your life that actually tries to make you feel responsible for the anxieties that are out of control in your mind and not being cast on God, then they're being very unkind and not gentle and they do not love you. You, And and you you need to remove yourself from that. Your anxieties are not your fault. You're a victim to those things. The Bible from beginning to end is written with hundreds of exhortations of God proving to us he is the God over everything and he says, do not fear. And then our hearts hear that and say, that's too easy, God, way too easy. I'm trying not to fear, God. I hear you say that. I don't need another Bible verse to tell me not to fear. I'm scared to death and I don't know what to do. Well, the passage here does not guarantee you that the heart palpitations will go away. The passage here isn't a medication that will stop the symptoms of walking around with lions around. I don't know about you, but I find it would be impossible to walk through a plane of lions knowing they could be anywhere and not experience some type of anxiety in the body. Peter is not saying here, stop having the bodily reaction to fear, but that's what we want, isn't it? I just wanna stop feeling this way. And so all of my control and efforts getting to stop, just trying to stop that. Peter's saying, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You have a God who loves you so much and is so uh, intimately involved with your own personal life and is not too busy for you. He wants you to give all of that to him and trust him with it. So you may still experience fearful things in here, but what's going through your head is, is the knowledge of the truth that God loves you, he's here with you, and, and he, he is going to help you through everything. But the help you may get may not be what you in your flesh want, which is relief. It's not what we need. What we need is the promises of God being rested in our heart and God being given these things as we're walking, constantly giving these things up to God. I'm trusting you with them, God. I'm trusting you with this. You know, walking around the sense of lion and danger all around of us, but what I'm doing is I'm giving you my anxieties, God. Humble yourselves, therefore. If humility is so important, then we must humble ourselves and we know that we're humbling ourselves because we are relinquishing control. How about you? How are you doing with that? I'll tell you what, we live in a world now where, uh, and here's how I experience it, with the phone. You, you, you're, you're constantly scrolling. All of us are. And we see constant material that's flooding our minds about things to be afraid of. And we're constantly feeding that to ourselves. And then all of the information is posing, is it not? I mean, I remember one time, like, I'm scrolling through and it's like, hey, don't eat eggs in the morning, they'll kill you. You know, I'm like, going to the next one. If you don't eat eggs in the morning, you'll die, you know? <laughs> nothing processed, nothing. And then next thing you know, we're just this timid people who just are scared to do anything and we're all trying to find a sense of control through eating the right thing, not doing this, not doing that, cleanliness, this, 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 and it's all being fueled by this this Bible that we're actually letting get into our hearts so that we will what? Be a slave to what? Be a slave to chaos, being learned and taught by chaos, opposing, instable, conflicting information that we're allowing to say, I will let you teach me, and then wonder why our lives are so chaotic inside. How is the lion going to devour us? It's one of the ways. We have everything that we need for life and godliness. Peter says in his second letter, we begin in all things that pertain to life and godliness through his divine power, supernatural power here. How much time we spend not consuming this and consuming this we will, we will experience the fruit of that way, and we are, absolutely. Surviving the onslaught of the devil requires God's might over mine. It requires humility over prideful control, but it then requires this in verse eight, sober-mindedness. 
He says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You, you know, there's kind of a sequence of thought here. If you take time to think about it of what Peter's saying, right? Be under the might of God. Okay, here's how you know you're humbling yourself under God's might. You're, you're doing the right thing with your anxieties. You're not trying to control them. You're trying to give them to God. It's a daily pursuit. Then the next thing would be being, you're able to be sober-minded if you're giving your anxieties to the one who can do something about that. I mean, let's think about this. Let's imagine your anxieties are ruling your life. You're not giving them to God. What are you doing with them then? Or how about this? How are you dealing with them? What does hardship and life tempt for us? It tempts for us to respond in trying to get rid of those things in our own strength, which is normally sinful escapism behavior. It's interesting you use the word sober-minded, not being intoxicated in the mind, but immediately he thinks of those who will turn to alcohol to make life feel better when life's going hard. That would be an example of you not humbling yourself under God, God's hand, taking matter. Here's how I'm going to deal with this anxiety through alcohol. How do you deal with your anxieties? Because if you're not giving them to God, you're gonna deal with them in some way and it's probably going to be something that doesn't actually help, doesn't actually deal with them, helps you escape from them, right? This helps. Throwing them away, just trying to always push it away, right? Distract yourself, whatever that may be. The mighty hand of God is able to handle our anxieties, and if he's handling them, then we're able to walk in sober-mindedness and watchfulness, right? Now, the reason these two things are so important or because he now reveals your adversary, someone, there's a spiritual force against you who's far more powerful than you, that even Michael the archangel wouldn't rebuke, but he said the Lord rebuke you. The very strong angel in the Bible from the Old Testament, the New Testament, who's able to overthrow the devil, but still in his interaction with the devil, left it into the Lord's hands to deal with this guy. Very powerful adversary whose goal is to devour you. So, sober-mindedness and watchfulness is required. It would, imagine watching someone on their cell phone and they're just walking. You ever seen these videos of someone just walking and not paying attention next to they fall like into a hole or they walk out into traffic? Uh, a mat, could we, is there any way we could walk through a, a plane of lions or fall into a lion's den and just be like totally distracted by our phones in that moment? No, you would understand immediately what sober-mindedness and watchfulness looks like. But that is the world we live in. Spiritually, we are in enemy territory and God's trying to wake our heart up to feel that way. And so he gives us the knowledge of, whoa, sober us up, wake us up. So let's talk about sober-mindedness for a second. I have here that sober-mindedness over worldliness is required for surviving the onslaught of the devil. The reason I say the word, word worldliness is because the opposite of being sober-minded would be worldly. You have to think of this word sober, which would be not intoxicated. Minded would be of the mind, so it's not necessarily, he's not wanting us to think alcohol or substance, so it would include that. He's getting to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is not the symptom of what we actually do. It's something that started in the mind. An intoxication of the mind has already started. A passion that Peter has talked about several times that wage war against the soul has already awakened in the mind to cause us to go out and to do the things and ma manifest those desires through our hands in whatever way, the symptom. But, but it's, it starts with the mind. And we are, we are fully, if not doing anything about it, fully intoxicated with the world distracted, totally ruled by our passions. And so the moment we wake up to the time we go to sleep, it's fueled by the things that we want to do in the world, the things that are passing away, the things that John tries to warn us of. Do not love the world or the things in the world because the love of, love of uh, the Father is not in the world. And these things are passing away. And so the Christian has to constantly fight getting entangled with the things of the world that will intoxicate our mind. Like, just, it, it's... 
it's the idolatry. It's the thing that settles in a heart where it's like, I can't stop thinking about it. I want it. It's what my day revolves around. What is it for you? What are you intoxicated by? What are you potentially tempted to be intoxicated by? And then is there control over, is your body under control as it pertains to that thing? James says each person is drawn away and enticed by his own desires. Everyone has something. Everyone does. But when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin's fully grown, it brings forth death. That's the process. God has saved us and awakened our minds so that we can be sober-minded and realize like, whoa, life is not about all of this. It's not about my image online. It's not about status. It's not about money. It's not about getting the house that I want. It's not, it's not about this. It's not about making all the friends or it's, it's not about uh, you know, my, my profile. It's not about the entertainment that I'm consumed with. It's not about you know, the game that's happening later. All of these things that the enemy would then want you to, when you hear me say something like that, say he's being legalistic, right? All that empty talk that comes in, that's part of how he's devouring us to keep us from ever paying attention and sobering up and waking up. Like, Whoa, These things have not been in their proper place. I have been intoxicated by it. God has not been the love of my life. It has been these things. And I have like missed out on all these years of my life because I've been so caught up in this thing, whatever it may be. Nothing is unclean in and of itself, but what is unclean? Our hearts, desperately wicked, sick, deceptive, and our hearts will take anything and make it God. And we have to, as Christians, be sober to that. Everything in its proper, underneath God and its priority. The inordinance of life has to be done away with. And things need to be in the proper place. You enjoy life and thanksgiving to God. But the things that we enjoy and we pursue are subservient to what God wants. And so we devote our life to God. This is sober-minded. Be sober-minded. Don't be distracted or intoxicated by anything other than God and his plan for your life. But then he, he, he kind of brings it with this. These things go hand in hand. Be watchful. What does that mean? The other thing that is required for surviving this onslaught is watchfulness over naivety. Let's see if I could say that more like real. Naivety. I don't, I don't know how to say that. <laughs> watchfulness over being naive. Do we know what this means? Like, I'm just kind of aloof to life. I'm, I'm not really aware of what's going on around me, right? That'll get you eaten by a lion for sure. It, you know, speaking of scrolling on the phone, guess who was scrolling on their phone this morning? Big dog here. <laughs> My brother-in-law's laughing. That's an that's a inside family thing. Anyway, uh, love you, Jason. <laughs> Scrolling on my phone. And guess what? I saw one of the videos that popped up on my phone was someone walking in the streets and literally they turned their phone and there's a lion right there in the street just kind of, and they walk past the bush and you could tell they're like, did I just see what I think, think I saw? And like turn around and the lion's coming around the, the uh, corner. You're dead, right? Being naive, asleep, aloof to what's going on will get you caught. Peter is writing this. Now, we have to make assumptions, but what do you think Peter may be thinking about in this moment? Is there time in your life, is there time in Peter's life where he heard his own Savior emphasizing him to stay awake and to watch and to pray, where he failed in that journey and that exhortation? You think about the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is, is under much anxiety, pressure of not the fearful type, but the appropriate type where you're about to die an excruciating death and you know it, right? You see the, the sweating drops of blood. You know, you can't stop the body from responding to the things that are legitimately fearful. But Jesus, was our example of what, how, how to rely on God in those moments. Well, what did Jesus say to Peter? Stay awake and pray so that you may not fall into temptation. And right, Jesus would go off and pray and he'd come back and what? Peter would be what? Not watchful, asleep. And you see it, Jesus would be like, wake up. Can you not stay awake for one hour and pray? And then what happens before it's too late? Judas is showing up, Jesus is being betrayed and Peter is cutting off ears or an ear. Right? He's responding to the moment, but he'd still, at this, he doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. He, he, doesn't, he, he, he doesn't get 
was happening. Though Jesus tried to help him and explain it, he wasn't humbled under the mighty hand of God. He told Jesus that you will be safe in my power. He told Jesus that I will never leave you or forsake you. And what was the experience Peter had? He didn't humble himself, so he was humiliated, which actually is a biblical uh, understanding that God lifts up the humble, but he abases the proud. We humble ourselves so we don't have to be humiliated, but the humiliation is necessary for us to continue on the path that's necessary for us and best for us if need be. Peter humiliated by his denial of Jesus, but restored and redeemed by his acceptance when it's he resurrected. A hard lesson that Peter had to learn that I wonder if he's thinking about when he says this, because he's thinking about Jesus earlier saying to him, Peter, the devil desires to sift you as wheat. And Jesus says, but I've prayed for you. And and I I imagine in the moment, Peter's like not sensing the urgency. He doesn't get it. But God, since he's all knowing Jesus, he knows exactly what Peter's about to face. And he fails the test. Peter being an example of what this whole test of this letter looks like. Don't give up on Jesus. Do not deny him. Your faith is the most precious thing. Keep it, keep it, keep it. Don't let anything take it from you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. The things that are happening in your life, you're not struggling with those surface-level things. They're being used in your life to try to take your faith away from you. Do you see it? Are you wise to it? If not, you'll be eaten alive, and before you know it, You'll hear the rooster crowing and you'll have done something that will bring great shame and guilt in your life. And as Peter did, he went and wept bitterly over what he did. The last statement he ever made before Jesus, his savior, who he walked with for three years, promised he'd laid his life down for was a denial. Probably felt no better than Judas in that moment. I don't want to be that. Peter doesn't want us to be that. That's what this letter is about. And so he's helped through the whole letter, lead us to water, verses six to 11. Here's what drinking looks like. Drink. Surviving the onslaught of the devil requires God's might over mind, humility over pride, sober-mindedness over worldliness, watchfulness over naivety, and then fourthly this, resiliency over falling prey. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And then he says this for nine, verse nine, resist him, comma, firm in your faith. Like the resilient Christian is the one who's able to resist the devil, but not in his own strength. We've learned this so far. It has nothing to do with our own strength. It has everything to do with resist. What, what are we resisting? Is is it an actual physical war that's coming in? No, all of this is spiritual. All of this is happening right here. How do we resist the devil? The answer is right there in that comma and that very next phrase. Resist him firm in your faith. If you go and read the book of James, James almost says something verbatim as Paul does. And I actually want to read it for you real quick. The book right before 1 Peter says this, James says this. He doesn't say it to suffering Christians, though. He says this to lazy, uh, unstable Christians. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Well, James and Peter certainly agree. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. And James says this, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's that humility. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. That's a little bit more of humility. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Certainly a theme among the apostles that was bleeding through by the Holy Spirit of a message that he wants his people to get and understand. Peter says in the first chapter, he introduces that the most precious thing that people have, the thing that you're carrying, that the lions want to take from you, it's not a big slab of meat. I don't know of any vegan lions, though I sure would like to meet them. 
It's your faith that's precious. And this is what the enemy's trying to take. So the way you resist him is actually keeping your faith firm, stable. There's a fortitude. Your feet are planted because you're sober-minded and you're watchful. You understand kind of what's going on in the spiritual realm around you. You're not, you're not ignorant to it. And then when it comes upon you, though it hurts, though it causes you to cry, though it causes you to lean on God and beg for help, though it's not something you would ever want in your own life to be that feeling of betrayal and mockery from the world or even physical pain from the world and rejection, the same that Jesus fought. Your feet, though, are planted and what's going through your mind through all of that is God is real, God is good. He loves me because he tells me that I am not condemned because I'm in Jesus Christ. And the enemy's constantly trying to attack that. James says that the instable man is someone who is tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, every thought, right? Every thought that comes to your head, you're just a slave to, and your faith is being eaten alive. Let me ask you something. Maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you're going through this right now where you're like, man, I just, I love Jesus. I, I, I want to follow him, but it's like I can't get over this sense of he doesn't love me. He doesn't love me. And so I'm wallowing constantly in self-pity and self-deprecation you are losing the fight. The fight is not you need to feel better and you're waiting around for you to feel loved. The fight is for you in your mind to actually believe what's true, to believe what God says instead of the devil. You're not resisting him. And so he doesn't flee you. He doesn't flee from you. He knows I can get you with this. So I will continue to get you with this. And this will ultimately ruin your life. Take all of your productivity from the Lord and actually cause the fruit of your life to be worldly. And potentially, if possible, I'll take your soul from you. And you'll prove to be the type of soil that was planted among thorns and among the sun and proved to not be true and real. And you give up and the enemy has devoured you. No, you resist him, though painful, But the one thing that should not waver is your faith that God is real, that God is good, and in Jesus Christ, he loves you. That's the fight you must fight. That's how you resist him. And guess what? He will leave you. You you prove to him, I can't win over this person, this man or this woman. Their faith is firm. But if your faith is unstable, you will be tossed to and fro, battered by the waves that are coming against you. Resist the devil firm in your faith. Resiliency over falling prey to what? This lion who wants to devour you, but devouring you is devouring your faith. What do you believe about God? When times are going hard, I mean, what, honestly, what is your, what does your thoughts look like? Is it, man, God's good, God's good. God, where you at? What are you doing, man? You don't love me. You don't love me. Is it that testing? It's the same thing that happened to those in the wilderness and Israelites, as long as they were eating the food they wanted to have and had the comfort they had, God was good. But the moment they had any second to do what they wanted to do or things didn't go the way they wanted it to go, they turned to idols and they started to blame God. That is an example of someone who does not have real faith. They, they have an evil, unbelieving heart, so you should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. You must serve him through faith. The one thing that has to be true in our life is faith. Our salvation is being guarded through faith. The one thing that God requires of mankind is that he believes on the one whom he sent. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Free gift through faith, by grace through faith. Your faith is the most precious thing you have and the devil wants to destroy it. Finally this and then we're gonna end. The final thing necessary to surviving this onslaught, and this one's hard, God's timing over mine. God's timing over mine. He says this, resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not the only one going through it. You are not alone. And after you've suffered a little while, God, does it have to be that way? First chapter said that as well. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory and Christ will himself restore, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the glory, dominion forever and ever. 
Amen. And I think maybe this is maybe the, one of the main reasons we do not humble ourselves is because we're trying to make the timing ours and the results ours. We have to believe, have faith that God is more powerful and his ways are better. We don't have to understand it, but we must believe that. And then we give our life to God and in the most suffering moments of life, though we struggle, though we hurt, we entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good and we trust him for the timing. But we must not miss this, the hope and the guarantee and the promise that is here. We are talking about a pain that will end by people who will experience a pain far greater that will never end. And so we pity them, not us. And we ask God to sustain us and use us. And if our suffering could be used for his glory and for the salvation of others, then God, give me the strength to go through it in your name and for your glory. Use me and let me follow in the steps of Jesus, my savior, and carry my cross like I'm supposed to. Be willing to take it up every single day and carry it. But God, this exaltation, which is what I want, I want to be restored, confirmed, strengthened, established. You're going to do it. Personally for you, he will be the one who restores you and confirms you and strengthens you and establishes you. And if it's not in this life, it will be in the life to come. Your exaltation is coming, guaranteed, set in stone. And their destruction is set in stone and it's coming. So during the time we're here passing through earth, we ask God to use us to help snatch people out of the fire and bring them into the family. And if we must suffer in order to do that, then God make our hearts willing like Jesus was in the garden. Not my will, but your will be done. We need grace for this church. Peter ends the letter. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting, declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son, Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ. The words of our Lord written to us thousands of years later, may God cement this into our hearts and make us the type of Christians worthy to walk alongside these Christians as well here today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts. You are very much um, acquainted with what it is to experience the grief on earth and you walked it fully to the end all the way up to the point that it was finished and you paid our price on the cross and bought us so we could come freely into this family by grace to have the promise of salvation. All of those can come in through faith and the enemy hates this. Our adversary hates this. He hates us, but he's been defeated. And his time is short and he knows it. So he's gonna clamor. He's gonna fight. He's gonna try to distract us. He's gonna try to take our productivity. But God, you pray for us by your spirit. You intercede for us with groanings too deep for words. And I pray that you would establish us, make our faith firm, help us to resist the devil. And God, use Summit Church as a place that would be light in the midst of darkness, that we would not exalt ourselves, but we'd be humble and be people ready to be used for your honor and your glory. We pray this all in your precious name. Amen.